Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We do remind you that tonight at 6 o'clock, we'll have the groundbreaking for our loft. Our kids are invited to bring their hats back and wear them tonight if they'd like to. And uh, if you had a kid who wasn't here this morning, if we have any left, we'll pass those out tonight as well. So bring your, bring your hats back. We are grateful to all the neighboring uh, Neighbors who've allowed us to park in their commercial parking lots, and especially to Emerald College, opened just today. That big north parking lot, so really been very little stress at all, and we're grateful for how that's timed out. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, always on time. Look at his sisters. As they pace back and forth and back and forth, staring over the horizon of the dusty road, longing to see that familiar silhouette of Jesus coming over the hillside. To be sure, if pacing and watching could make him come, Jesus would have been there a long time ago. And why? Why couldn't he be here? Their brother was terribly ill. Oh, he had been sick before, but he had never been sick like this. And they were scared. And deep down, they were even disappointed. They'd sent a messenger to tell Jesus, to get Jesus, but he had not come. And every hour, Mary and Martha died a little bit inside as they watched their brother Lazarus slipping away from them. How many times, how many times did they uselessly repeat, oh, if Jesus were here, oh, if Jesus were here, if Jesus were here, he would know what to do. If only Jesus were here, we've seen him heal, he could heal our brother. If only Jesus was here. But Jesus did not come. Why did he turn down their plea for help? They loved him. He had loved them. What on earth could possibly be so important that this and their most desperate hour, Jesus would not show up to heal their brother? Anxious hours dragging on into hopeless days and still, still no sign of Jesus. The sisters were grief-stricken and frustrated and maybe even a little bit mad at the Messiah. Jesus is probably out there somewhere performing miracles for total strangers, opening blind eyes and healing the lame, Yes, they were his best friends, and they needed him. I just don't understand. They must have said to each other a thousand times, I thought he loved us. I thought he loved Lazarus. I thought he cared. Why would he abandon us now? Lazarus died. Still no Jesus. Jesus didn't even show up as they wrapped Lazarus' body in the burial cloths and said goodbye to their brother and lovingly placed him in the tomb. At last, we'll learn Jesus did show up, but he showed up four days too late. 
There have been times in our lives, times in all of our lives, that it seems as if Jesus is showing up late, maybe even four days late. It is said that devotional writer Henry Blackaby teaches that Jesus never shows up late, to which his wife, his dear wife, replied, but he doesn't show off very often, doesn't show up early very often either, does he? Some of you here today are just like Mary and Martha. You pace back and forth, and you pace back and forth, and maybe today in your own life you are looking over the horizon for the silhouette of the Savior coming to rescue you. And you ponder with those sisters, will Jesus ever come? And like the sisters, perhaps this morning, you are frustrated by his absence because he's tardy. His apparent refusal to help really just doesn't make any sense. So what do we make of Lazarus' death? What do we make of Mary and Martha's pacing back and forth, back and forth? Most importantly... What do we make of a Jesus who doesn't show up when his friends really need him? Let's unpack the story. In verse 5, we learn that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Everybody has to have special friends with whom they feel at home. With those kind of friends, you feel like you can be yourself. Folks who company brings you ease and relaxation rather than stress. For Jesus, those special friends were these three, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. They lived in Bethany just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. It was convenient for Jesus and his disciples to stay near there when he made trips to Jerusalem. In verse 3, the sisters send a message. Lord, the one whom you love. Isn't that a great way to be known? That you're the one that Jesus loves? Lord, the one whom you love is sick. They knew Jesus would do, know that it was Lazarus. Have you ever won somebody do something really, really badly, but you hated to ask? I've found that most West Texans will just ask, but maybe in some cultures you really want somebody to do something and you really hate to ask. You don't want to be an imposition upon them, something so big that you really couldn't ask them to do it. You couldn't take that risk. You couldn't ask them to take that risk. I think all of that silently hides behind verse 3. They send a messenger to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. They never really asked Jesus to come. Have you ever noticed that in this story? Why don't they ask Jesus to come? They don't ask Jesus to come because they know that the risk is too big. Why, Bethany is so close to Jerusalem, and the religious authorities are by now agitated by this rabbi and his growing popularity. In fact, we're going to take a look in just a moment. In chapter 10, they've already tried to stone Jesus. 
And to ask Jesus to come back to Bethany is asking Jesus to come back to the very location where very recently they have tried to stone him. And the disciples, we will see, are afraid they don't want to go back to Jerusalem or Bethany or anywhere close to Judea because of the impending threat. So they don't ask Jesus to come. They sort of hint at it. The one whom you love is sick thinking, won't you come, but to come is risk. Look back at chapter, chapter 10 and verse 31. When Jesus says in verse 30, I and the Father are one, notice what happens. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Then look at verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Jesus has just had a close call in the environs of Bethany. The religious authorities were on the watch. But Lazarus is sick. And he can't go to Jesus. We need Jesus to take the risk and to come to Lazarus. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard the news of Lazarus' sickness, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified by it. The glory of the Father and the glory of the Son are always one and the same in the fourth gospel. And sometimes God is glorified through our healing. And sometimes God is glorified in our sickness. Which one will it be in the story of Lazarus? Look at verse 6. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What a reaction. What a response. When he hears that he's sick, he stays an extended two-day stay right where he is. That's not the response we expect. That's not the response that the sisters expect. They expect that Jesus is going to come running, even if it's risky, and heal their brother. Yes, Mary and Martha had sent a camouflage cry for Jesus to come. And they expected he would risk it all. Jesus had never been a coward before. He'd never been afraid at the crowds of authorities before. But he lingers. And he lingers. And he continues his work. In fact, Jesus knew that death had already taken place by the time the messengers arrived. They don't know it, but Jesus knows it. He makes no preparations to go. He doesn't pack his bags. He doesn't send messengers back, say, tell her we're on our way. We'll be there just as quickly as we can. He just stayed, an extended stay, right where he was. And Mary and Martha, and Mary and Martha watched their brother die. First thing I want you to see this morning 
Jesus' hand cannot be forced by external forces. Jesus' hand cannot be forced by external forces. Jesus works in his own time, on his own way, according to the Father's calendar and not ours. In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, you have people trying to push Jesus to do something before the Father is ready for Jesus to do it. And Jesus will respond, chapter 7, Jesus' brothers urge him to go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, but Jesus says, no, I will not hurry, you go. And then on his own time, Jesus goes. Or in chapter 2, he's urged by his mother to turn the water into wine. He tells her, I'll do things on my own time, woman. I'll do things my own way, the Father's way. In this case, the sisters have sent for Jesus, but he tarried. And yet, curiously enough, in all three cases, Jesus eventually does what each one asks him to do. He eventually does go to the Feast of Tabernacles, not by his brother's watch, but by his own. He does at last turn the water into wine, but not because of the command of his mother, but because he's working a miracle of the marriage feast. He finally does go to Bethany to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but not by their timing or our timing. We'd already packed his bags, but by the Father's timing. To go to Jerusalem, in this case, was to move forward towards the cross and the crucifixion, to move towards his own death. And the ministry of Jesus cannot be changed or rushed, not even two days. It must stay with the calendar of his Father. Maybe there's been a moment in your life where you needed God to act, and yet God seemingly stood still. When you waited like Mary and Martha, and you were wringing your hands and wondering and saying with these sisters, if only, if only Jesus, if only Jesus, then God just sat on his hands. Maybe you have an if only in your heart right now. Maybe, too, you will run off in a moment with Mary and Martha to greet Jesus. And you'll tell him your problem, and you'll say, if only, if only you had come sooner, if only this awful thing would not have happened. Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? At the right time, God's time, Jesus says to his apostles, we're going to Judea. But at verse 8, the disciples, remember, he nearly got stoned, which meant they too nearly got stoned back there in Judea. The disciples protest. They realize what it means. The religious authorities are looking for us. It's a political hotbed to go there. It's to lay down the gauntlet and declare you're ready for war, as a would-be, could-be Messiah King. It'll lead to a crucifixion. It does. But Jesus explains that while he has opportunity, 
He must do the work of the Father. Second thing I want you to see, Jesus defeats death. In fact, Jesus never even conceives of Lazarus being dead. In fact, he says in verse 11, our friend has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples say, well, don't worry. They don't want to go back. If he's asleep, he'll eventually wake up. Let's don't go and awake a sleeping man. Nature itself will take care of that. In verse 13, Jesus says, you don't understand. I'm not speaking about his being asleep, but rather I'm speaking of his death. So he says plainly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. There are a few things that transcend more cultures than the fear and the anxiety, the grief, and the loss caused by death. Fear of our own death, fear of the death of those that we love, Everybody in this room and everybody live streaming and everybody by way of television this morning can identify with Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus. Everyone in this room has been close enough to death that you know that terrible fear and anxiety that the funeral brings and the emptiness of experiencing the loss of someone that you love that much. How empty is it without him now? How lonely is it now without her? If they could just be here again with us. So we too weep at funerals because we know the sting of death. We gather around those who experience the power of death just like the sister's neighbors did. Look at verse 19. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Verse 21, Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The neighbors have gathered around the girls. Lazarus must have really been a great guy if he was Jesus' best friend, the one that Jesus loves. But when they hear that Jesus is coming, they get the word, and when she hears it, she just runs out. Martha does, verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if only you had been here, we sent you word, she's really saying. Lord, if you'd only been here and acted, if you'd only been here, all things would be better. Oh, Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. Now, the Jews at this time did, in general, believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees perhaps did not believe in the resurrection, but most of Judaism did. We find that resurrection talk like in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 is part of the new creation. Or even in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, it speaks of the resurrection of the dead. And so Martha says, oh, I know on the day of the resurrection he will arise. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 25 and 26. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
Yes, she says, verse 27, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 32, Martha goes back and says, Mary, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. I've spoken with him, but he's asking for you. And Mary is almost as if they had rehearsed the lines. When Mary sees Jesus, the first words out of her mouth are, man, I wish you'd have been here. How differently we wouldn't even have had a funeral if you'd have been here. Couldn't you come earlier? I wish you'd have been here. When Jesus speaks to the sisters, He's not just saying that one day there'll be a resurrection, but rather he is the one who brings the future into the present. The resurrection Jesus is teaching Mary and Martha is not just a doctrine, but rather it is he. He is the resurrection personified. Instead of asking if only, he's asking the girls to ask if Jesus. If Jesus. If Jesus is he who is coming, if Jesus is the Messiah, the one promised by the prophets, if Jesus is the Son of God, the one in whom the living God is strangely and newly present, if he is the resurrection in person, if Jesus, then all is possible. Jesus asked there, verse 34, to be taken to the tomb. And then in verse 35, Jesus wept. Don't waste your breath trying to convince me these aren't real tears or there's some other theological reason for his crying. Paul says we do not grieve as the rest who do not hope. Paul does not say that we do not grieve when we see someone stung by the power of death. And grief is bitter and loss is terrible. And Jesus burst into tears. It's one of the most remarkable, most incarnational moments in all the gospel of John. The one who's put on flesh is crying, crying at the funeral. You see what it means? Jesus put skin on and he knows our griefs. He knows our sorrows. He knows your disappointment. For John has already told us the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. I was once talking to our late pastor emeritus, Dr. Moore. He told me there was a day and a time, long, long time ago, when he was preaching revivals in one room churches. I mean, one room churches. And he said he learned not to walk while he preached. I walked while he preached. He said he learned not to because they laid the babies on pallets on the platform while you were preaching. And he was afraid if he walked around, he would. Step on a baby. I'd make you stay in one place to be sure. I said, you don't mean while you're preaching the baby. Yes, I mean while I'm preaching. That's the nursery right up here. Just lay the babies up here. We're not going to go to that policy, by the way. Just lay the babies (laughs) right up here. The mothers came up and changed the diapers and everything just right in the middle of the sermon. He said, I noticed When a baby would cry, the right mother would always get up and tend to her child. 
Didn't matter which way the baby was facing. Didn't matter where the mother was seated in the sanctuary. Every time a baby cried, the right mother got up and went to the right baby and would tend to her child. Each mother knew the individual cry of her baby. In that same way, Dr. Moore said, Pastor, God knows the cries of his people. God knows because God in Jesus weeps with us at the graveside. And now God doesn't seem so far away anymore, does he? As Isaiah has said, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. I would add, he has wept with us. Verse 39, Jesus declares, get the stone out of the way. One of the sisters protests, Lord, let me remind you, he's been dead for four days. It won't be a good situation. We don't need to remove the stone. And this dramatic moment in the story, Jesus confronts the enemy of death face to face, head to head, and shouts with a commanding voice, Lazarus, the Greek says, Lazarus, here outside. Lazarus, here, outside. Verse 45, at the resurrection of Lazarus, so many believe. But verse 46, some Jews go and tattletale to religious authorities. And then in verse 53, it is in this gospel that the resurrection of Lazarus is a single event that leads to the determination that Jesus must now surely be crucified. If he can call the death dead forth, there'll be no end to his popularity. Third thing, sometime God asks us to wait. Waiting time is the hardest time of all. There will be no death for all eternity in the presence of the one who embodies the resurrection power himself. But sometimes, God asks us to wait until that day. November the 17th, 2011, Oklahoma State experienced a tragic loss of Coach Kurt Butke and Coach Miranda Cerna. Butke was taking a recruiting trip to Arkansas. He was going after a blue chip recruit that everybody in the country wanted for their women's basketball team. He didn't like to take recruiting trips during the year. He'd rather focus on practice in that season. But this girl was good enough, and she'd shown some real interest in OSU. And he thought if he got her, he'd have a legit chance to make a run at the Big 12 title. His wife, Shelly, said, even at the airport, he seemed kind of nervous and was questioning his decision, but, but he decided to go anyway. Kurt had told his wife, Shelly, he would be home by... 12.30 a.m. She texted him all evening, but he didn't answer. And then so she started texting the assistant coach, Miranda, and she didn't answer. And finally she said, I'm worried about you guys. Where are you? No reply. Having troubling sleep that evening, she woke up at 2 a.m. He's not there. He's never late. She decides to drive to the airport. Know what good it'll do, but... At least it's something to do. 
She opens the garage door, and as she's backing out, the police cars arrive in her driveway. They tell her the plane has crashed, and all four have died. In the midst of all the pain and the grief, she said, Kurt was not a guy who would get knocked down. He didn't pout. It was God and Kurt, my kids. I wanted to shine through all of this. I wanted to make Kurt proud. Many days after the crash, Shelly had a hard time even getting out of bed. And she'd think back to Kurt coaching his first little team at Kansas City, Kansas Community College. He inherited a ragtag group of girls, only had seven girls on the team. Sometimes they would get 20 or 30 points behind. Shelley said he would call them to the huddle and he'd say, I don't care about the score. Just win the next five minutes. Just win the next five minutes. When they win that five minutes, he'd call them back and say, see, the score's getting better, but don't look at the score. Just win the next five minutes. They celebrate again. Just win the next five minutes. Shelly said on those mornings she didn't want to get out of bed. She would think back to Kirk coaching that first little community college team. She could hear Kurt saying to her, Shelly, just win the next five minutes. Sometimes, congregation, that's all you can do. Kurt, she said, his voice coached me along. Shelly felt closest to Kurt at games at Gallagher Iba Arena on the OSU campus, and so she went to every game. The season went on without the coach. The Cowgirls did so well, it was a long season, they went into six games in the National Invitational Tournament, which culminated with their winning a championship on a crisp Saturday in March. And yes, Shelley, of course, was the last one to climb up that ladder and cut the last string on the championship net to celebrate a championship her husband had worked for for years but never got to see. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who dare believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Some of you are pacing back and forth with the sisters today, and you're looking for the silhouette of a Savior. I want you here today that Jesus will come on time. He'll come at the right time. He'll come at God's time. And though there may be a wait like the sisters had to wait, when he arrives, he will bring all the resurrection power the Father has bestowed upon him. I am the resurrection. And then he asked, do you believe this? So I ask you, 
Do you? Do you? Everything depends on it. Do you believe this? Let us pray. Oh God, we come today. Perhaps there's some here, some live streaming, you need to say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And even now I proclaim Jesus Christ as my crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior. Maybe there's some right now who are pacing back and forth with Mary and Martha. They need the arrival of Jesus. Maybe, maybe we be reminded today that God knows and hears the cries of his people. They put on flesh to be with us, to stand at the grave with us, and to weep as we weep. And may we be reminded that he himself died to defeat death. And God help those who hurt this morning. When the next five minutes, as we again find ourselves waiting on you, amen.